Hi and welcome to the first Cinetopia of 2019. I'm Paul, the director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, Scotland's largest dedicated short film event. We're back here now at our new home at EHFM and uh, we've also got a few new team members. Uh, Melina and Will have sadly moved on to Pastures New but uh, we're obviously hoping to catch up with them a bit later in the year so stay tuned for that. In the meantime let's introduce our new team members. First of all we've got Jim Ross here who is the editor and co-founder of Take One magazine. Take One magazine covers independent cinema and festivals globally and has done since 2010. Welcome Jim. So tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Uh, so we've been covering the London Short Film Festival recently which has some stuff from the Edinburgh Shorts Festival actually. Uh, it's looking very good. Uh, the Glasgow Film Festival programme uh, came out a short while ago, so I'm planning our coverage of that, and it looks like there'll be a lot of interesting stuff, so hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about it here. Great, and we also have Annie here, who's a freelance film practitioner uh, based in Edinburgh, originally from Helsinki, and uh, Anna's also recently graduated from the Edinburgh University Film Exhibition and Curation Master's Degree course, so congratulations, Thank Annie. Thank you. That's all right. You've also been working with film festivals internationally, and you're a programme with Cinetopia. So what have you been up to lately then, Annie? Watching a lot of films. That's good, I'm glad to hear it. And of course, as usual, uh, we also have Amanda Rogers, um, who's also graduated from Edinburgh University and has been making films with RPP Productions around Scotland. Uh -huh. Hi, Amanda, and how, how are you and what have you been up to? Hi. Yeah, so um, since I've moved to Scotland, I moved my um, video production business here and we've made a couple really great films. One with the Scottish Council and Archives, showing archives all around Scotland. And the other one was with Colourful Heritage, which is an archive uh, um, based in Glasgow. Okay, so uh, here we are, ready to start. We might as well crack on. Uh, there's a lot going on in the film industry and a lot to talk about, so let's get going. Well, it's Oscar season, and uh, as usual, there's a lot of uh, Oscar-nominated films out just now uh, that we should look out for. So we're going to start with our reviews this, this week, uh, this, this particular edition of Cinetopia, with a few films. One of them, The Favourite, and also Scotland's big premiere this week, which was Mary Queen of Scots. But let's start with The Favourite. So, Jim, uh, have you got any thoughts on that film? You tell us a bit about it and what you think of it. Uh, so... It's a period drama, uh, I mean it's not a particularly conventional one as we'll come on to describe in a minute, but it's set during the restoration period in Britain um, in Queen Anne's court. Olivia Colman plays uh, Queen Anne and then beyond that the main focus is Rachel Weisz who plays Lady Marlborough who was kind of like her closest confidant. I'm no historian here so I'm sure somebody will pick me up on this over time but basically she plays her closest confidant and then into this scenario comes uh, Emma Stone playing uh, a cousin of Lady Marlborough and basically the, the favourite, the title refers to kind of the this kind of triangle which of power grabbing which goes on between them. Um, I mean basically it uses the character interactions to frame the politics of the time. So th there is quite a lot of political manoeuvring going on, but it's all very much done and refracted through the lens of how those characters are interacting with one another. So Annie, how did you find it? Well, exactly that. So I found it very funny. It had some quirky humour that I liked. And because I'm not a fan of uh, period pieces, I liked the fact that it was mm, more contemporary. It could be set in any time and space, basically. Um, there's just this loose background of, of Queen Anne's court and it's more just about these three characters um, and the characters are complex, they're unpredictable, that's something you rarely see from female characters, mm. more nowadays of course and it's always good they do but in, you know, in the past less so 
Um, but yeah, I, I really liked it. So how do you guys think it'll do at the Oscars then? Have you got any? I think on the acting front, it'll do very well. Um, the, the, there's a lot for the, the three main actors, you know, so Rachel Weisz, Emma Stone, Olivia Colman. There's a lot for them to grab onto. I mean, basically, it is a very character-driven film, um, which has its downside, which maybe I'll, I'll get into in a moment. But I think it'll do very well on the acting front. Um, the director, uh, Jorgos Lanthimos, I think he could do quite well also, but I think the main focus will be on that acting trio. I think they are very accomplished, and I think it will hoover up quite a lot of awards for them, certainly. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, there's really good contenders for the favourite on the best picture, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that Olivia is... Well, I hope she's going to get an Oscar. She does an amazing job. <laughs> I'm very much rooting for Olivia Colman. I think she did probably um, one of the best. I'm a big Olivia Colman fan, but I think she also did an exceptional job with this. And I think that's what makes, I think the acting and the women and the story is what makes this a so much more positive Jorgos Lanthimos film than I've ever seen. You know, I mean, these other ones are quite dark in, in certain aspects, you know, I mean, not that I didn't enjoy The Lobster, but I think there's something quite funny, and um, I'm also a big fan of period, unlike Annie, maybe a big fan of period films and historical films, but I think uh, this one is a new take on it, and it's a definitely a modern take on it, which is which is quite, quite impressive to see. Unlike films, I think, in the past who've tried to be more modern, I'd lo love to throw my dislike of Marie Antoinette in there, um, but I think this film has got uh, a way to keep you entertained and also make you understand that really the women are, are the main part of the story, you know? Uh, Olivia Coleman is superb and actually what you said there about it being a slightly different take on it I really do think it's her performance that underpins that because mm. when the film opens she is fully in comedy mode really I mean I, I mean honestly you could the, the mannerism she's displaying and the tone that she's taking you, it's like if she was plucked out of peep show I don't know how much how much peep show any of you have watched but it, it did feel like the the Sophie character there to begin with but the range that she then goes on to display throughout the film is, is really quite remarkable. So this idea of balancing those interactions of the characters, the tone, and the fact that it's comedy as well laced in there, I think she's really the, the pillar that that all rests on. Uh, I mean, the other two are superb in their own right, but basically everything revolves around Olivia Colman's character. And if she didn't pull it off as well as she had, then I don't think the rest of the film would fall into line, to be honest. Absolutely. But I, I also wonder if you guys think, what do you think of that ending with the bunnies? <laughs> It's it, it to me it's funny because at the end of it it made me feel like a little bit of a David Lynch film and that's maybe why I thought the sense of humor added to um, to the new oeuvre of Jorgos Lanthimos that there's kind of this weird sense funny odd oddity to the way that he's filming this. Are you going to need a spoiler here? Some spoiler alert. Well, I I, I think that I can address it without. Um, without spoiling ancient history. Um, <laughs> but I think it actually plays into my only main issue with the film. This is where I'm going to d digress slightly from um, liking it. Th there isn't much feeling of momentum there. Now, for most of the time that the film is on, it gets away with it because the interactions between the characters is so engaging and it's so well written. 
but there's not really much sense of anything actually happening. Um, and I think maybe this actually plays a little bit into that conclusion because how do you conclude a film like that? Um, you know, these characters in, in real life, I mean, they would go on to live, they still existed at the end of the film, and, you know, there's a lot of history that follows the, the actual period this film is depicting. And it's got these intertitles, these kind of like chapter divisions, which quote some of the dialogue. And I, th I actually think part of the reason it's there is because there wouldn't really be much sense of progression if it wasn't. Um, and as I say, the film gets away with it. I like the film, but I think maybe the ending plays slightly into that. Um, if you don't have that sense of progression to the same level, then how do you conclude it? And I think that's maybe why it ends up that way. Yeah, I you know I, it's fine. I I like the intertitles, but I didn't like the way they looked. I thought they really annoyed me because they were like all spread out in different shapes and stuff. And I'm thinking about that. Yeah, it was almost stuff. like somebody had gone a little bit mad with the justify yeah, button. Exactly. <laughs> it was very bizarre. Yeah. And uh, you know, I also I think we talked about this before, but I, I don't like the massive use of the wide angle lens, like the eight millimeter sort of look. It was just too like I was watching a GoPro video or something like that. I just, I don't know, there was just something not, um, it was too fake to me or so, I don't know what, it, what, why he's so obsessed with that, but, but it wasn't my favorite element to that either. I don't, I, I don't either. I mean, the, 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 the super wide angle lenses, um, I mean, I, the main thing is I don't really see what it was adding to it. That, 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 I don't necessarily have an issue with the use of that. I just don't really see why it was used there. Um, Maybe I'm missing something, but that that because visual, visually otherwise, I think it's very good. It forgoes the problem that a lot of period dramas have, where it's a very staid and you know still camera. Let's frame everybody uh, appropriately. It is a lot more dynamic than uh, a lot of similar films, so it's actually quite good in that respect. But the wide the wide angle lenses did confuse me. That was a bit irritating. It didn't bother me at all for some reason. I didn't even really notice it that much. And there's a few theories online about it. The other one says it's more, it's like CCTV footage almost. So you, the whole idea is you're looking into this and it's, I think Mark Kamote said it's like hermetically sealed world, like a little snow globe that you look into. And they're very much like, they're all, everything is just, it revolves around them. So there's this very closed world. And maybe that's something that they try to convey with the use of that. Or then just a kind of new and contemporary look into to period dramas, you know, because it's, it's a totally new look of, of that kind of film. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that. Um, now, one film that we're going to review, it doesn't need a spoiler alert, uh, is Mary Queen of Scots, um, which is a big Scottish release, uh, Scottish based release this week. And um, so guys, I'm going to ask you what you think about that. Primarily also, I don't know if any of you have seen the 1970 version with Vanessa Redfern, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, is quite good. Vanessa Redfern is excellent in it, but uh, how it compares with that. But uh, yeah, so let me know what you think of it. Well, first of all, it annoys me that is it Joe Alvin is the name of the actor that's in both films. The guy who's, who's playing the love interest in Mary Queen of Scots of of Queen Elizabeth, isn't, isn't it the same guy that's in The Favourite as well? Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, why, <laughs> why, why did he say yes to both films? It's just a personal thing. Um, as a film, um, I like the fact that it's rewriting history in a way that is bringing these um, historical characters and making them very strong female characters with desire for power. Um, but it is a period piece, and the, the dialogue 
it's been praised for that it's it's script and I just don't I can't go with it like it's I said after the film it's quite like um, a musical for me so like it takes me like half an hour to get used to that you know, ponciness and that pompousness of, of dialogue um, and when I do get into it it's kind of easier but to begin with it's just too much like I just don't like that stuff and it ha didn't have much comedy either like I don't expect too much but when it's trying to take things too seriously it's it kind of distances me and I'm like I oh, know this is just stupid some things just didn't work with me at all but it is very cinematic um, it's very beautiful although it does use wrong places at the wrong time when it's go it's go to the borders and it's actually shot in Glencoe um, oh, right. which only mm -hmm. people who know Scotland From quite well Scotland, would no, probably yeah. care yeah, I think <laughs> but we do I mean, that, you know, I think passing off Glencoe is the border is probably a bit egregious, really. But, um, Regional borders, yeah. people can get very up yeah. about yeah. that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like, uh, I, yeah, I don't know how much of Scotland, you, I haven't seen it, so I don't know how much of Scotland you see in it, but do you think it, it works quite well? As a, it, when you look at Scottish historical films, they very often can be quite gritty and realistic, like The Outlaw King, or they take the Hollywood approach that Braveheart took. So does it, which side of the, the equation do you think it falls on? Um, a little bit of both of it. I, I mean, the thing is, vis visually, I think it is it's quite reserved, but it is very cinematic. Um, so the, the people who brought it to the screen, um, Josie Rourke, the director, she comes from a theatre background. And then you've got Bo Willimon, who is a playwright, and he's probably best known to people as the writer of the House of Cards remake that Netflix did, and showrunner for that, actually. So it would you'd think it could end up quite theatrical, it could end up quite stagey, but to, to its credit, it really does not. Um, it is, as Annie said, it's very cinematic and it's very well done in that respect. My issue with it is, it's probably a slightly different one to Annie, but it is related, um, and it is the dialogue. And the thing is, it frames this conflict between, I say conflict, it's more the, the conflict's maybe a bit strong, actually, between Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots as a sort of a power dynamic, a struggle between them over distance. And they are framed as uh, you know, very strong female characters. They impose themselves in situations quite well. And that aspect of it is great. The thing is, it's desperate to be seen that way. And that comes through in the dialogue. There's a lot of very overt moments which don't really sit with the flow of the film. When the thing is, the way it's scripted and the way they've done it, it would come through. The themes that it wants to present about how these two women were regarded and seen in the eyes of the men of their respective courts and even their subjects would come through in the film anyway. But it's making these very, very unsubtle, trailer-ready moments which are ready to be plucked out and put into promotional material which which don't fit and the annoying thing is they don't they don't need to have it if you'd put a bit more trust in the audience then that would have come through um so in that respect it, it's a little bit unfortunate i mean it's not breaking any period piece molds i don't think but it is very watchable again the leads are very good it's just that lack of subtlety that really it, it actually kind of pulls you out of the film a little bit and i don't think it would have been at the expense of the you know the themes coming through or anything like that so that part of it to me is a little bit unfortunate absolutely i felt that same way i mean annie actually and i went to see the film together and there were just moments where 
I was laughing, you know, like, oh, I need a drink. And <laughs> these like moments of, are you for real? Like these, 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 these are the one-liners that I think maybe they're trying that same kind of brave heart. You know, we want something that will survive for 10 years that you'll be able to quote or I, something that must, uh, that must be a reason why they were doing that. But I felt, I felt it was not, um, I, I was surprised that everyone said the, the script was so good because I thought that was kind of something that frustrated me. But I do think it was probably more cinematic than I expected it to be for a theater director. It was when you think of things like Mamma Mia, which is so like, it feels like you're watching it from a stage, you know? I, I try not to think of Mamma Mia, but I enjoy Mamma Mia every once in a while, but... <laughs> You know, the idea that this theater director has taken, like, and made this so 3D is so apparent and has used Scotland in such an amazing way in terms of filming. It's just stunning. They're saying that it's going to draw lots and lots of people to Scotland because um, it's such a big blockbuster. It's such an important story that people are interested in and history and I can see why, because I would watch this and was like quite happy that I live here, you know. And and I can imagine some uh, family in America being like, "Let's go to Scotland next summer and see where Mary Queen of Scots rode her horse," which is actually Glencoe, not the Borders. So yeah, so I think the thing with uh, Mary Queen of Scots, of course, has a quite a large cult following as a, a historical figure. So that in itself is is going to generate. Do you think they played fast and loose with the kind of because these people will want to be studying this film closely to see how, how accurate it is in terms of the, the historical accuracy. So does it play fast and loose with that to gain an audience or is it fairly faithful and um, would it sacrifice you know, cinematic elements in order to, to be more historically accurate, do you think? So I think by and large, uh, and again, I preface this with I am no historian. Um, famously, my American wife's uh, British and Scottish history is a lot better than mine <laughs> in terms of knowledge. However, I think by and large it seems quite faithful. Um, I, I think you will get some naysayers, but I think that's largely because I think uh, Mary Stewart has been pretty hard done by <laughs> in the historical uh, context. Um, I think you know she's being reassessed quite a lot, and that's part of the reason this film came about. So the the, the book, uh, the factual book that it's based on, is very much kind of a reassessment of her legacy. Um, so it doesn't play too fast and loose. The, the one standout moment, which has been mentioned a few times, is the fact that there is a scene, it's in the trailer, so this isn't really a, a spoiler, is there is a scene where Mary and Elizabeth meet, uh, which of course, supposedly, as far as I'm aware, and based on what I've read, did not happen in real life. Now, I don't really have a problem with that. The dramatic trajectory of the film demands that it happen, and I think it also gives the two uh, actors a chance to bounce off each other, and it's a quite engaging scene when it gets to it. My main issue with it is it shot like a perfume advert before that bit. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's the scene where these bed sheets hung up in its soft light and they kind of, you know, artfully weed their way I through I like the them. scene. I, I, I did not. I did not. I, I, I th it looked like one of those like Chanel adverts or whatever that Margot Robbie um, shot a while ago. That's, that's maybe just me. But beyond that, it seems quite faithful. But in a... It, reassessing it in a modern context, which I think is a little bit more engaging and a little bit more um, appropriate for our time, really. Yeah, that meeting scene is, we talked about it right after we came out the cinema, and it's, I think, or we thought it was the 
most theatrical scene there is. So I could see that work on a theatre set. So like they're thinking these two people are going to meet, how do, they're going to be on the same stage. How do we get them not to see each other straight away? Oh, let's put down some sheets and you know, that'll look great with the lights. So like that's, that's something that I think is directly derived from her, the director's history on theatre stage. Um, I liked it. But then again, it's, you know, it's, it's an opinion stuff. Some people like it, some don't. But it is also the first time the actors meet each other in real life. So Margaret Robbie was just finishing filming and Saoirse Ronan just started filming. So they hadn't seen each other in costume before that. So mm, it's right, okay. also the first time for them to meet. Mm. I mean, it's quite a theatrical device to part curtains in any case, isn't mm. it, I think? That's yeah, and the fact that they don't see each mm. other straight away, it kind of, they said they're not sure if they used the first take but the first take definitely gave a bit more emotion to the scene because it is also them seeing each other the first time. So I do understand why it's there and I do understand why they did it like that. It's an interesting, it's an interesting point. I think, I, I didn't actually know that about them, them meeting for the first time. I think, and, and don't get me wrong, I didn't, I didn't hate it as such. Like I didn't you know, stand up and want to march out of the cinema or anything, but it's just, it did feel a little bit like even an extension of that symptom of wanting to make everything very obvious and I just find it a bit unfortunate because actually I think the dialogue in that scene is some of the some of the better written dialogue in the film um, these two characters coming together for the first time and expressing you know treading that line between admiring each other and being you know very wary of each other and that's where a lot of that gets to come to the fore I found just the way it was shot I, I found it a little bit jarring because the other thing is it, it doesn't to me, really fit in with the rest of the film. But no, I hadn't considered that. It's a very good point in terms of why it was done that way. So, finally, would you guys, quickly, would you recommend it to Edinburgh audiences, you think, Mary Queen of Scots? Well, of course, yeah, because it is, it is sort of made for the Scottish people as well, part of it, and for British people equally, I think. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, I think I'd, uh, I, I do have some reservations about it, but I don't see any, I don't see any reason to t tell somebody not to go see it. It looks very good, it's well acted, it is very engaging, like, sure, there are the odd bits that need a bit of extra polish, but, you know, it's very rare that you come across a film where that's not the case, so, good. yeah, absolutely. Well, there we are, that's one film we don't have to spoil the ending for. So, um, we'll move on now to the next part of the programme, which is going to be an interview with the actor Jamie Robson. So we are joined today by Jamie Robson, the actor who appeared in uh, Blue Christmas, which was the film that won the Best Scottish Short Film Award at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. So thanks for coming in to talk to us, Jamie. My pleasure. Uh, we're really here to talk a little bit about acting and so on, um, but just a little bit about your, your, the year that you had. It's been quite a, quite a big year for you. Yes. And um, there was the BAFTA award-winning uh, My Loneliness is Killing Me. Yes. Obviously Blue Christmas, which yes. appeared at Sundance and uh, has also gone on to win an award in London, I believe. Yes, and it also screened, uh, it premiered at Toronto mm -hmm. at TIFF and then went on to be in the competition at Sundance and Raindance and London Short Film Festival. Also um, Claremont Ferrand, which is uh, Oh yeah, quite a well-known yeah, short yeah, festival. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So you've also uh, have you finished? You were in Spin State, which is yes. your first feature film. Yes. So that's completed now, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's okay. well into post-production. It's likely to hit the festival circuit around spring. Okay. So. so how did you find you know moving from acting in a short film to acting in a feature, and how did that? How did, how was that different? Uh, the scale, obviously, the 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 the, the, the budget allowed for better locations and facilities. And having to sort of digest a feature-length script um, was uh, more of a challenge. And sort of understand each section or 
act while maintaining the through line. Um, and the, the nice thing about shooting a feature is that you're in it for longer. So you've got more time to settle into the character, to develop a relationship with cast and crew, and to explore and even experiment and really tangibly feel and demonstrate the, the, the journey that the character goes through, you know, from sort of um, identity to essence, you know. So do you think in, in a feature it's maybe easier to adjust your performance as you're making it? Yes, and you know, time, yeah. And you sort of add little bits of extra into the, yeah, the characters? Yeah, I just think that you have, I mean, especially if you have a relationship like I do with Rossi Wilson, the director, we're very close, very collaborative. So at night we'd often maybe look at rushes or discuss the day of shooting, plan the day ahead and make tiny adjustments to the character or, or, or to, you know, so it was a, it's, yeah, it's the negative or, or the difference with features is that it's a huge wheel. It's, it's a much bigger wheel. So w with shorts, I could have been shooting one a month mm. and maybe see it, you know, three months later. But we shot Spin State a year ago mm. and it's maybe going to hit the festival circuit this spring. Mm. And, you know, a project with Charlotte uh, Wells that we'll discuss later, maybe we've been t discussing for two years. A project with Mark Cousins I've been discussing for two years, so it's a much bigger wheel, mm. you know, with features. Yeah, there's a, there's a long, longer uh, lead-in yeah. and so on. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of, um, you know, the actual year that you've had, it's been quite successful. Um, Spin State coming out, um, you're obviously looking forward to that. Can you tell us a little bit about the film and, and, and yeah, the background? Yeah, so uh, the script <coughs> came in and I was blown away immediately. Um, often... Uh, scripts come in and there's things that you don't understand or you'd like to inquire or you'd like to maybe suggest tweaks before you know committing but this script was just um it was incredible and it was very very well written ross wilson he's a, a writer director he's really an auteur in a sense because he has such a almost obsessive control you know he he, he would like he likes to kind of co-produce to to edit to grade uh, he's very involved in, in sound design and things like that. He's really um, very much in control. And the script came in and uh, we had a chat on the phone. I, well, I actually called, I pulled into a lay-by when he, when he rang me and we spoke for three hours. <laughs> and the next day he came up uh, on the train and we went actually to see a Caravaggio exhibition because we both believe in looking at other art forms to get ideas for cinema. Mm -hmm. So for lighting and composition, looking at classical art, maybe sculpture, poetry and prose for dialogue and so on. So, so what is it um, that attracts you to scripts? I mean, is there a particular type of script that you... Uh, a good one? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're at the mercy of the material. I mean, on stage or screen, yes, you can play or tweak with the material often, but you can't change it. Even if the director said you could, you know, you could improvise, it might then offset that scene with the previous or the next scene. It starts to break it up. So you really are at the mercy of the material. And... Um, for me, uh, it's about treating the audience with respect. And I think uh, sometimes the work is uh, a bit on the nose. When you, when you read some scripts, the emotion is a bit on the nose or it tricks the actor into playing the emotion. So you end up putting a horse costume in a horse. Mm -hmm. And when you read a sophisticated script where there's amb ambiguity, there's paradox, and there's space for the audience to sort of do the final edit, that mm. interests me. I think that's more sophisticated. So that's that's the kind of the kind of script you're looking for is really something that subtle and sophisticated yeah. and mm -hmm. space for everyone to take something from. If it's too fixed, if it's too coloured in right to the edges and very sort of blocky, 
there's not much anyone can do apart from watch it and that's a very kind of passive role for everyone even the actors or the audience you know so I was reading uh, that you you moved down to London. Uh, um, I'm based in a lot more. Mm. I was 50-50 now I'm a lot more. I would say 70-30s. Yeah, 70-30 at least. So. Do you find that was a big advantage? I mean, no, not at all. <laughs> the way I uh, work, I'm not really looking for work or applying for work or maybe what's known as a kind of jobbing uh, per uh, performer. I tend to pick my work very carefully, not because I'm famous, not because I have some financial security, I have the opposite, you know, I am you know, live very humbly, but in doing so, it allows me to say no, because I, I think it's important that you pick your canvas carefully, um, because you, if the work, if the material is bad, then there's nothing you can do, and suddenly you're, you're stuck, you're committed legally uh, to a project that, is not going to be satisfying or, or enjoyable or could be detrimental to your to your reputation uh, and it's a very it's a very intimate thing to work in a feature film you know with the director the writer the cast the crew so i prefer to pick my work carefully and that has done me very well in shorts in stage in shorts and now in features i turned down two features before taking spin state and um i'm very proud of spin state and uh, i so moving to london really hasn't hasn't changed anything. Do you think, I mean, for other actors out there that might be considering doing that, do you think that what are the, they might, obviously the advantages are fairly obvious, yeah. but what about the drawbacks, do you think? I mean, You're in a bigger pond, so there's more competition. Uh, you, you have, it's harder to stand out and gain attention from casting directors or producers or writer directors. Um, it's more expensive to live. Um, I don't really consider myself part of the Scottish scene. I never really did. Um, I think of myself much more as just a, an international or actor or at least European. I haven't worked in the States really, but I've worked with French directors, Turkish filmmakers. I'm a big fan of Turkish cinema, particularly in the 80s. So, yeah, I mean, London, for me, was just circumstantial. I, have, I know lots of people down there, my agents down there. I am down there a lot for meetings, but I didn't go down there to try and find new work. And if, if, if another actor thinks of doing that, fine, but it isn't a cheap place to live and it's, there's a lot of competition. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now you've got some plans coming up uh, for projects coming up. Um, well, there's a few features in development uh, or tipping into pre-production. Some have um, uh, partial funding. The first one that's most likely to be shot is Things They Tell Us, which is the debut feature by Peter Marsden. Now, Peter Marsden actually used to be based at Summer Hall in the Lucky Me studio. He's an award-winning music video director. He's worked with Vice, Dazed, Nowness, Apple. And he did his debut short uh, two years ago, 2016, called Not Required Back. And we used some incredible footage of that oil rig. Remember the oil rig that washed up? Oh, yeah. 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 So we ha it, we re it reminded us of the end of um, Planet of the Apes. Oh, you know, yeah. Where they yeah. So we, uh, we, um, we made that film together on a very low budget and it had its world premiere at the BFI Film Festival. And then it did, it did some good uh, festival screenings and got some nice uh, reviews. So his first debut f uh, feature, we're developing and writing together. What is it you think that makes Scotland particularly cinematic? I mean, is there something about the, the landscape and the people? Yeah, well, obviously it's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And um, there's lots of unspoiled landscape for uh, external shots and uh, maybe period films as well, uh, castles and ruins and country houses and things. So it's great for that stuff. 
Um, it's a great access point to the rest of Europe. Um, the subsidies from the government. Um, uh, there's a strong community of uh, crew up here, very talented crew that I hope if foreign shoots come, they make use of. I think that there should be a law or certainly some responsibility placed on international projects coming here and they should take uh, a vast percentage of the, the crew building from the local area. Scotland's got it all happening. It's a fantastic place. It's got a rich history, you know, the birthplace of the Enlightenment, you know, and it's very liberal, you know, and uh, it's, it's... There's quite a lot of uh, literature yet to yeah. be explored in film, even. Yeah, know. yeah, um, very much so. And um, so, yeah, the, the, the Scottish industry's got a lot of potential. I think, I think it's doing well with big budget. International projects like the Avengers, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, sort of semi-international, semi-cooperative films like Outland, uh, Outlander or series like Outlander and Outlaw King, but also really low budget, completely independent, uh, thought-provoking, you know, experimental, um, alternative filmmaking is, what is, is what's missing. I think that's, you know, a lot of, you know, major film industries have that uh -huh. as, as your kind of base to build on, you know, and I think that would be a yeah, good I'd thing like to see. I'd like to see more young David Lynch's, Jim Jarmusch, mm. Maya Deren, Agnes Varda, uh, you know, the next Mark Cousins, or more, more Mark Cousins, and I see, see that in the cinema more regularly, mm. you know. So. Well, we can only hope that <laughs> comes about. Oh, okay, Jamie, thanks for coming along. Thanks nice again. to speak to you. Good luck with the films. Cheers, we look forward to you. seeing them. And... We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. So it's Oscar season again, and uh, a few of the shorts nominated for uh, short film Oscars this year were screened at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival last year, uh, including Fauve by Jeremy Comte and Late Afternoon by Louise Bagnall. Late Afternoon's an animated Irish animation about a woman remembering her past, a woman suffering from Alzheimer's who's remembering her past. And Fauve is a very uh, dark drama uh, about the lives of two young uh, kids playing in... in uh, Canada and uh, Quebec. Uh, so let's also now move on to the predictions that we have uh, have in mind for the Oscars this year. Uh, you got any um, idea who's going to win or who, who, you'd, who you'd put money on, Jim? I mean, a few. I think the acting ones are fairly... I, I think Glenn Close uh, for The Wife is pretty nailed on for uh, Best Actress. Ooh, okay. Um, so I would definitely put that on. In terms of Best Picture, I'd... I'm looking at the list right now. I, I really have no idea, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, it is quite a diverse list. Um, I'm a little bit surprised, surprised Black Panther actually made it on. Uh, but then again, they did create this whole new award for Black Panther and then canned it once everybody decided it was a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> um, so in that respect, maybe it's not that surprising. But for me, I think I'm very pleased to see that Black Klansman has got a lot of recognition. Uh, that would be a film that would be quite easy for the Academy to ignore for various reasons. I mean, beyond that, also it came out a while ago now. But I'm pleased to see that that's got as much recognition as it has. Beyond that, I think it's the ones that a lot of people expected to show up. Uh, Roma, I think, is up there. The favourite we've already spoken about. That's all there. Um, in terms of predictions, I would expect to go with the number of nominations. I think they'll probably get the most awards. Specific ones for Best Picture, I don't really know. I don't know if anybody else has got something they think is nailed on. I think it's going to be a hard, a hard one, to be honest. I haven't seen Vice, and I haven't seen Green Book, and it seems like Green Book took a lot at Golden Globes, but then is kind of somewhat controversial from what I'm reading. Um, I just am shocked by Bohemian Rhapsody, to be honest. I think it's like 
a fun movie. <laughs> I quite enjoyed it. I love listening to Queen music, you know, not secretly. And um, Rami Malek was good. But I just, that film was not good in any sense. It was fun, but it, it, it and even the live um, aid scene that everyone's talking about is like they recreated it digitally or whatnot. It's, it looked fake to me. So I just don't know. Um, uh, I really liked Black Klansman. I really liked Roma. I really liked Black Panther. So, you know, they're different. They're diverse. Um, they're very different yeah. films, you yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think from what I've seen, Roma looks like quite a hot favourite, uh, given the amount of um, publicity it's had. Yeah, except it's in Spanish. So, I mean, that's like the probably the first... I mean, I know the artist came one, and um, it was a silent French film. <laughs> but it, it it's it's a... Perhaps I. Is there another foreign language film that's ever won an Oscar? I I can't think of one off the top of my head. Yeah. I, now I'm sure I'm sure maybe we'll have comments coming to how could you possibly have forgotten this? How dare you? But by and large, no. Um, and I'm not going to go into the artist because I hated it and it basically has the plot of Anchorman. But let's not get into that right yeah. now. Um, but historically, that's why there is best foreign language film. There's a whole bunch of films that have been relegated to that category over the years. Um, you know, Cold War is nominated in that category this year, which, you know, it's been sweeping the boards in kind of the European awards. Shoplifters is in there. I'm pleased to see that. That is a beautiful film. Really, really great. But these are the things that don't make it in. I'm actually, this is why I'm surprised that Rome has made it in, because it has the, the twin problems, inverted commas, of being in a foreign language, but also being a Netflix film, which is a bit of a controversial topic insofar as, you know, awards and theatrical distribution goes anyway. So in that respect, it's done very well, and I think that's maybe a testament to how good the film actually is. But whether it will actually win in the end, I mean, that's another step up, I think. But I hope the reason it's there is because it's going to win, because I really hope it's going to win. <laughs> It would really deserve the Oscar. Um, the favourite, another one I wouldn't mind winning, Green Book, like everyone else in here, I don't think anyone's seen it, but it sounds interesting. Um, I'm not rooting for Black Clansman, even though it has a fin in it. Um, Black Panther, supposedly good, but yeah, not really fitting within this category, it's in really, with the other films. But then again, you know, it's good that, it, like you said, Amanda, it's, it's a very diverse uh, selection of films, so that's good to see. I, th I mean, not to not to wrench us off topic, but I mean, this is this is basically my my issue with the Oscars. I'm not saying that any film in that category is a bad film. It sounds like, well, actually, hold on, is Vice up for Best Picture? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Vice, Vice should not be there. I'm sorry. I I enjoyed it in the same way that I enjoy watching Alec Baldwin's impression of Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live, which is not to denigrate Christian Bale's performance. That's very good, but it's not it's not in that sort of category of film. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the vast range of films that are screened over the course of the year, they are not the best films there. It doesn't mean they're bad, um, but there's always one. There's always one that makes it in which is not that great. I think this year would be Bohemian Rhapsody. In previous years, you've had things like Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. That was not a good film. I didn't like the artist. That's maybe a more subjective opinion. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of films which do not make it in, which are, are very good. And that doesn't mean that they are irrelevant as awards, but it's more... I find it strange that people talk about Oscar snubs and things like this when 
there's so many films come out every year, so many wonderful films that never even get a look in for these things. I mean, I think, you know, Spike uh, Lee was saying there that they've diversified the Academy Award members that elect nominations. And that might have had an impact perhaps on maybe the range, the, the, you know, there's a greater range of, of film types. So I wonder if that's had an impact on, on the nominations, do you think? I think it has the best picture, yeah. Well, it definitely hasn't for best director by any means. This is the year after uh, Oscars so white and Oscars so male, there still is all these amazing uh, women directors that have shown um, have great films. You know, Lynn Ramsey, uh, one of our Scottish ones, no women directors nominated. I think it's quite frustrating for a lot of people from what I've heard and myself, um, you know, that it still don't, it doesn't seem to come up. So bothers me a bit. The Lynn Ramsey thing really bothers me, actually. Um, at the same time, I'm not surprised by it. She, do, she doesn't really make films that are particularly Oscar-friendly. But in terms of a directorial achievement, You, you Were Never Really Here was a fantastic film. Not an easy one. I, I'm not even necessarily sure I'd want to watch it again, to be perfectly honest. But it's really great, and I think, given some of the strides they'd made to try and diversify the offerings in the nominations a little bit, it, it is a little disappointing. And I think Amanda says quite rightly, I think the best director category this year leads that disappointment, to be perfectly honest. Great. Oh, well, so... Not many clues there for me to go down to the bookies with, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep at it next time. <laughs> but uh, maybe next time. Um, great. Okay, so thanks for that, kids. And uh, we'll move on to the next subject, which is the Glasgow Film Festival programme, which has very recently been released. Uh, is there anything that's caught your eye there and that you'd perhaps recommend for people to go and see? Well, me and Amanda saw Aquarella. Aquarella in... Um in IDFA in Amsterdam and we saw it in a similar screening or same screening actually that they have in Glasgow as the Dolby Atmos screening and it's it's an interesting film it's very atmospheric so being in Dolby, Dolby Atmos is a, is a good choice um, it's got a really interesting music musical score again made by a Finn um, but the cinematography is absolutely beautiful and the beginning of the film is super strong um, the rest of it is more mellow it's there's a lot of just footage of of icebergs but it's still it's a very very beautiful film very cinematic and mellow I, I, how what? about a big storm i can't remember the storm <laughs> <laughs> this is why i remember the beginning of the film because it's very strong and the ending if you're and looking for a very talky film this is not it, it. this is not they don't no. speak and there's no plot whatsoever so like we just go from one place to another around the world it's all about a theme of water um and we we go from antarctica i think um we go over to somewhere mid-atlantic on a, on a sailboat and it's just observing humans interacting with water or just water as, mm. as an element. Or so it's almost like an experimental film or a poetic film? Well, it's Viktor Kosakovsky film, so like oh, that should mm. tell you something. Um, it's not really experimental in a way. It's, it, does, it's, it is just very... It's observational, but it has a very distinctive Kosakovsky style, I think. 
And it's um, produced by a local um, yes. producer, so exactly. the production company is Scottish, um, mm. and uh, quite quite amazing uh, woman who produced this. And they spent many many years and a lot of time and a lot of danger. <laughs> when you watch this, you're like literally in a storm on the in the sea, or in a hurricane. Um, but it's 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 really like artistic. It's quite a stunning experience. So when people talk about cinema being an experience, it is it is um, it and it and it's not heavy-handed in that way of not you know it's talking about environmental issues and it makes you realize how powerful and water is. But it doesn't throw. It's not um, you know an, another Al Gore film that tells you you know that we're destroying. The environment and that's in that sense it, it shows you how how powerful and how, how beautiful um water can be so we highly recommend it or i do at least yeah i do as well it's going to be on friday 22nd of february at 3 p.m in cineworld in glasgow yeah. is there anything else that catches your eye jim I mean, a couple of things. It is a very large program. I'm still digesting it, to be perfectly honest. Uh, a film I haven't actually seen, um, but there's a film called Happy as Lazaro, which has popped up in a couple of festivals in England. Um, so it screened at the Cambridge Film Festival, where we had quite a lot of people, and also at Brighton. Um, and I, d I must admit, I don't do know too much about the film, but I will probably try and go see it, because it seems to be highly recommended by just about anybody that I... Uh, talk to. Beyond that really I'm just going to take a random selection. Uh, the Glasgow Film Festival based on last year as a film festival I'm very willing to place my faith in. Uh, it was one of the best festivals that I went to last year and pretty much across the board even did, did, you know let's be honest there was a couple of films I picked where I wasn't as taken with them but they were all interesting films and some of the best films of uh, last year that I saw at film festivals popped up at Glasgow Film Festival. So really, I would encourage folks to just get the programme, go through it, pick a few things, and really just take a dip. I think it really captured the spirit of what a film festival should be about, and that is basically why I'd leave it. I would say that. Great, okay, well, we'll certainly look forward to the Glasgow Film Festival, which is starting on the, <laughs> early in February, isn't it? 20th of February? 20th, yeah. okay. So, yeah, so we'll look forward to that. So Amanda here was recently part of a debate panel at the This Way Up conference, uh, which discussed uh, a topic which has caused us to have uh, some spark some conversations here. So Amanda, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you talked about there? Yeah, so This Way Up is a UK-based uh, film exhibition innovation conference. So it brings together people from, you know, all over the UK to talk about sub subjects. Uh, you know, that are affecting exhibition. And um, one of the things that seemed to spark a lot of debate during our, our early talks about the, about the conference is how we police, um, you know, cinema spaces. So, um, you know, is, and, and we created this topic called, is the cinema, uh, is the silent cinema um, audience um, outdated? Because there's a lot of things we have to think about in terms of, you know, people, uh, some people are louder in spaces than others and, and um, you know, and, and whatnot. So I'm a big fan of um, 
popcorn and munching on popcorn and munching on nachos and slurping uh, sodas. But I do realize that I come from um, an American um, background, which is sort of standard. And since I moved here, um, you know, I've been to a lot of cinemas where that is terribly forbidden in certain spaces. Um, you know, but but then that is the case in. Um, other spaces. So I thought I'd ask you guys all what you think about what, what cinema exhibitors um, should do in terms of the noisy or distracting audience members. Um, yeah, well, uh, guys, do you want to go first and tell me what your opinion is about? Is the cinema a sacred space? Sacred space is maybe a little strong, right? I, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that, you know, everybody should sit in silent worship of what is on the screen. However, there is an element of, unless what is happening is a spontaneous reaction to the film, I am kind of the opinion of, no, be quiet. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I don't actually really include munching on popcorn here, you know, I mean, the actual, like, you know, the actions of somebody, like, munching on something, that, that doesn't particularly bother me, you know, if you're going to sit down in a darkened space for two hours, I don't think you can realistically expect people to not want a snack or a drink or something, but if it's your own impromptu director's commentary on the film, which happens more often than not in films, I find, particularly if you're going to a, a, a multiplex, it doesn't necessarily happen in, you know, the, kind of the smaller independent cinemas, but certainly multiplex is going to watch blockbusters. I find it happens a lot and it really irritates me. It does really irritate me, to be honest. Annie, what do you think? Are you well, perturbed? Well, I'm on Amanda's side with popcorn, um, but I would ban nachos mm. on cinemas, but not because of the sound. The sounds don't really bother me that much. What bothers me with nachos is the smell. Mm. Um, oh, there's some snacks that are, you know, okay because they don't stink and there's some sac some stuff you just shouldn't bring into a closed space also yeah. don't wear perfume if you go to see a film um but in terms of like people talking that kind of does annoy me as well to be honest like if um and glares from phones that's that's another thing so if you if you look at your phone during a uh, a screening and there's a glare it kind of takes your attention away but also at the same time i know i am a bad f I'm bad at watching films in a way that I tend to distance myself from the screen very many times during the film. So if I'm watching something, I know some people are like fully immersed in it, whereby myself, um, I, I don't know if it's my attention span or if it's because of my film education, but I tend to kind of take a step back and think, oh, I'm, I'm watching a film. What is this film trying to do to me and tell me? Um, or like a random thought, like, oh, Shea Saronum lives in Dublin, right? Where does she live again? You know, so like it's, I'm constantly kind of snapping away from that, you know, black box of just concentrating on the screen. So if there is a slight annoyance around me, it doesn't bother me as much as it might bother some other people. But, um, you know, it's annoying when there's some best of us around just talking about film. They know, they think they know more about it or they comment on everything that happens. That, that's just something that you should know not to do. I think, yeah, one of the questions that was brought up a lot is whether or not it's the, it's the responsibility of the cinema to police this kind of behavior and how does one do that for the whole collective, you know? Um, and for me, that's where I sort of stand in in the fact that if they don't tell people 
kindly to be quiet, then there's a potential that they could disturb the entire audience. On the other hand, if they're going around and kicking you out for doing something, then there's a sense of unwelcome like exclusivity to the space that makes me feel like I wouldn't come back and we're trying to get people into the cinema, you know? Yeah, so. an absolute worst case that I had experienced was in view here in Edinburgh, where a, a person that works in the cinema came in to the screen twice during the film uh, to check something, probably that no one's recording on their phones or, or being quiet or something, and they have a high-vis vest, mm -hmm. and they walk in, and everybody can see them walking in. Like, it's, why would you do that? So if you're policing something like sound, how would you do that? How, if it's enough to tell people you're, sh you're not supposed to do something. Just don't talk, don't look at your phone, fine. If they decide to do so, it's their, you know, bad mannerism, basically. So I think, you know, um, from my point of view, I think I don't really mind people sucking on boiled sweets, you know, um, or I mean, the smell of nachos would probably make me want to go and buy nachos. That's disgusting. You know, I quite like nachos. <laughs> it's just like smell uh, of boiled fried yeah. vegetables. I think you know meat. the worst thing is. I think there's worse things than that. If somebody puts their feet up on a seat, then undoes their shoelaces, and takes their shoes off, you know, that's worse than nachos. You know, frankly, and I think that's that's an executionable offence. I think. But, the, the thing is, right, in terms of whether a, a cinema, whether an exhibitor should police this. There's different variations of it. I mean, there, there, there's the active policing, if you like, which would be the whole an usher coming in in a high vis vest <laughs> to, you know, dis, you know, just look at whether people are recording or not. And I, I think in, ideally, if that could be done in a way that wasn't quite so ridiculously disruptive, that would be something to do. Not every cinema can do that, and I think that's an important thing to note. However, there are certain passive things that could be done and I think they could be done better. So for instance, I find certain cinema chains are far better at telling people to turn off their phones. There are certain chains where they make a real big thing of it. There are others where they don't. And in all honesty, I do notice the difference. I do see more phones lighting up the audience like there's a lighthouse in the middle of it in these places where that not more is made of that. And I think it's because people don't like to be told what to do. And I have noticed over time, I think there's a certain sense of entitlement that people have when they're going to the cinema now, in terms of, I own this space. And if the question is, should cinemas police it, then maybe to an extent, but in a more passive way like that, it's really down to people to understand that this is a public space. And I'm not saying that you know nobody should be offended in the public space. I don't think that's the correct thing to say. But it's more, you don't own this space. There are other people who are trying to derive enjoyment from this. Therefore, you're not going to get everything you want out of it. You don't get to, you know, rustle a bag for 15 minutes solid, right? If you can't open the bag, don't take it in. And it's just, there are certain things that could be done more, but it, it is really down to people to self-police it, I think, um, whilst keeping it inclusive to a degree, because you don't want to be too, too demanding of people's behavior. I, I don't think that, that would be fair. I mean, I've seen I've seen certain uh, theaters of people who go around the first five minutes pushing and telling people to you know to turn off their phones and stuff, and that's made me feel uncomfortable because I'm I'm afraid they're gonna you know notice when my watch or something like lights up or something like that, and and I also have had people tell me to you know stop rustling my nut bag and stuff like that, which I you know, was, was members of the audience. <laughs> 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 
or whatever. But you know, it's it's um, it, it it happens, and and I think if of course if people don't want to go out with a bunch of people around them, then they have they have the space in their house to do that. But on the other hand, we need to consider the fact that uh, if a place is too loud or too boisterous and you're paying a certain amount of money, you're not enjoying the experience that you paid for as well. So like there is a there is a happy medium between that. I kind of like the fact that there's two parts. So it's an entertainment and how people like to entertain themselves. So some people like to be a bit more, bit more laid back, have a few snacks, talk with their friends while they're watching a film. But luckily, the context is different, usually in cinemas that are more art house and have more like independent films that people might not see as spaces where you go and you know spend time with your friends and talk and have a good time. But instead you go there to see a film and you go there to enjoy a film. So I like that there's different kind of theaters, so there's different options. So if you just want to go for something like light-minded, go into Cineworld of You. And if you want to get something like an actual filmic experience or you want to enjoy like the, the art of film, you go to places like Filmhouse, for example. I just wish that there would be a bit more crossover between the two types of cinema. So like that view and Cineworld would also have the artistic side. Cause there's also the audience in there, because I usually, when I go to view, <clears throat> I see exactly this. So I see nachos, I see people rustling bags, talking to their friends. Um, but when I went to see the favorite in there, that was I was the most noisiest person in the screen. And there was maybe like 40 of us. Um, and then again, in Filmhouse, the fact that they don't sell popcorn. OK, fair enough. Maybe that makes it a bit more kind of some artistic experience, but then you know, some felt it sh there should be a bit more, I, I don't know, how do I say it, but like a bit more, some of the films that are in Filmhouse should also be in view, some of the films that are in view might also work in Filmhouse as well, so a bit more kind of relaxation you know, on the rules that there is, maybe. I think that, you know, there's different yeah. cultures around yeah. different cinemas, you know, to some extent. I remember the uh, cameo used to show the Rocky Horror Show, and you were encouraged to come along with rice and shout at the screen and so on. Um, which doesn't seem to be happening much with cult movies these days, but... Uh, yeah, that's the whole other thing, that's the audience participation thing. Yeah, yeah that you have to clean the screen for four hours after that. So. <laughs> but it is, a bit of, a bit of, it is a bit of fun to have, you know, a, you know, a Rocky Horror the call-in response or a, you know, great, great showman Mamma Mia sing-along, you know? Like, those are different experiences, and I think maybe at the right place and the right time, these things can happen. I think it's good to have those sort of screenings um, and uh, there are certain films that invite that sort of thing and I think it's great there is that sort of thing. Also these screenings where you know the, the reduced sound is used so people can go in with their young children, um, autism friendly screenings, all these sort of things are all, are all good things. I think what needs to be avoided is basically us going down for your standard showing in a multiplex theatre, it basically becoming impossible to watch the film. So I've been to the cinema in a couple of places in the Middle East. So I've been in the United Arab Emirates and I've been to the cinema in Kuwait. And when I got back home, I went to see the film again because it, it is impossible. In fact, in uh, the United Arab Emirates, I left, I walked out. And 
uh, sorry, not the United Arab, I left uh, the screening in Kuwait, rather, because it was impossible to really get anything into the film. People were on their phones, talking, there was food getting thrown around in, in one case. And, I mean, not a food fight, more just kind of, you know, it's just people, people messing around. And it's, there needs to be a certain level of respect for what you're watching, even if it is a, you know, reasonably disposable piece of cinematic fluff. There are people there to watch it. They weren't chucking nachos around, were they? That would kind of no, 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 they weren't <laughs> chucking nachos, fortunately. Or I think I probably wouldn't have gone in the first place. But I think that's the route you want to avoid going down. And there are places where that is the case. And I find it a little bit sad. And in some cases, they don't have the alternative cinemas. Is the other thing. They don't have things like Filmhouse. They don't have things like Cameo. Um, a lot of them don't even have anything like, say, The Dominion in Edinburgh as well. Um, yeah. So I think that's what it wants to be avoided, and unfortunately that's kind of the trajectory I see. That's what worries me. Great. Well, this is a, clearly a debate that will run and run. Um, we'll revisit this, I dare say, uh, in due course. So, many things coming up next month in film. Uh, the Sundance Film Festival is underway, Bellinale is coming up, and the Glasgow Film Festival, obviously, we talked about earlier. Uh, a few other things that are happening in Edinburgh. Obviously, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, is now open for entries, and uh, we're also helping out at Manipulate. We'll be programming an animation short film program there, including uh, late afternoon, which is uh, up for an Oscar. Um, Anna, here, uh, will you tell us what you're doing at Manipulate? You're doing something there, aren't you? Well, one of our films, one of our projects, is there. So we did this um, uh, exhibition about a year ago here in Edinburgh. Um, Centre for Research Collections in University of Edinburgh where we were studying unearthed these boxes of films and images from this guy called Eric Lucy. And he was a, a filmmaker pioneer and film, film scientist pioneer basically. He worked in the animal behavioural department and he used film form to do research on um, animal behaviour, plant growth. He did some experimentation with lights, mirrors, stuff like that and he left behind him just boxes full of films. And we watched through the ones that were available for us. And these are not just scientific pieces, they're like, they're artistic pieces as well. They're visual, they're very, very nice. Um, so we compiled, or Becca Selby heard from our course, compiled together a 15 minute film office footage. And we commissioned spoken word poetry and live music to go with it. And we did that here in Assembly Rocks in Edinburgh. And then that took off to Edinburgh International Film Festival where Tinderbox was doing the live score to it. And now it's in Manipulate Film Festival, mm. not Manipulate. Yeah, Manipulate, the, it's a um, puppet and uh, Visual, visual theatre, puppetry and animation. Yeah, absolutely. But um, do you know when it's on then? Yeah, it's uh, February 9th, at, um, <laughs> February 9th. February the 9th, yeah. there we are. Uh, and that's actually the same date we're doing the, the animation screening. So, yeah, I think so is that at the Traverse, of, is it? Yeah, it's at Traverse too. We're at the Traverse, um, you're at the Traverse. And I think there's a lot of, of the film events are happening that day. Yeah. So if you're film inspired, check out their website. Great, we had Simon Hart on to chat a bit last year. I think he's a bit busy this year, but mm. hopefully we'll maybe catch something while we're there. Yeah, hopefully. With a bit of luck and uh, yeah, we look forward to that. So, I think uh, that's it for January on Cinetopia. Uh, thanks to um, <clears throat> Jamie Robson for coming along and to Nina Halton for creating the music throughout the show. Uh, we'll be hoping to catch up uh, next month um, when we'll be back with uh, covering more film festivals, film events and reviews. 
So thanks for listening in. The Cinetopia Radio Show is produced by Amanda Rogers, co-founder of Cinetopia and RPP Productions, hosted by myself, Paul Bruce, uh, the director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, and Jim Ross, managing editor of, Cine- of Take One magazine, as well as Annie Asikainen, co-founder of Cinetopia. And the music's curated by Nina Halton. For more information about Cinetopia and our partners, go to cinetopiashow.com or follow us on social media at Cinetopia Show. That's all for this month. We we'll look forward to seeing you next month. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks, bye. bye.